This is the Cheyenne Roundup, a weekly look at the action inside the general session of the 67th Wyoming Legislature, from Wyoming Public Media and Wyofile. I'm Jeff Victor with Wyoming Public Media and the Laramie Reporter. I'm Maggie Mullen with Wildfile's state government and politics team. And I'm Mike Koshmerl. I cover natural resources in the legislature for Wildfile. As you might recall, there were almost 500 bill drafts. So far, about 80 of those have made it to the governor's desk. And of those, he's only vetoed two and let one go into law without his signature. You can track the process on his website, governor.yo.gov. Scroll down to the picture of Gordon's signing bills and click the View Bills Signed by the Governor link. Going into the session, when Governor Gordon made his State of the State address, he urged lawmakers to save, not splurge. Maggie, you've been tracking what the legislature did with the supplemental budget. How did that go? Did they follow Gordon's recommendations? Well, the the short answer to that question is yes, but I do want to quickly refresh people's memories. So if we go back to October, there was this updated report on the state's financial footing. And, you know, that really showed that the past fiscal year was a lot more lucrative for Wyoming than than what had been predicted. And of course, you know, that was partially on account of oil and natural gas prices swinging back up, which, as the report pointed out, is you know, really indicative of the state's economy and how overly reliant it is on unstable revenue streams. So with that volatility in mind, Gordon asked lawmakers to think about the future when those revenue streams will inevitably dip. And save they did, the legislature put a record $1.4 billion into savings And of course, you know, that was spread out across, you know, what some lawmakers call these different coffee cans. And those have, you know, varying degrees of accessibility. For example, Gordon asked legislators to put more than $600 million into permanent savings. And legislature, you know, did that and more. And, you know, that's an account whose corpus lawmakers can't touch. They can really only appropriate the interest that it earns. Um, you know, Gordon also supported lawmakers' decision to move some funds that would have gone into the rainy day account and put those dollars into various trust funds, which, you know, still earn an interest, but at a at a lower rate. And, you know, lawmakers can move that those dollars around more easily. Now, whether the legislature splurged depends on who you ask. I mean, members of the Freedom Caucus, they repeatedly voted to cut spending throughout the budget making process. And, you know, ultimately, they were really unhappy with the final product. For example, Representative John Baer, who chairs the Freedom Caucus, you know, he specifically pointed to the funding that went to the University of Wyoming and capital construction projects. He also unsuccessfully tried to take money out of the cultural trust fund. Um, You know, others were really happy with the amount of spending and where it went. You know, that included Representative Bob Nicholas, who chairs the House Appropriations Committee. He pointed out that for every $1 spent in the supplemental budget, $3.50 goes into savings. Now, 
that equation could change depending on what bills make it across the the finish line. On Friday, Gordon signed the supplemental budget bill, but he also had some light item vetoes. Of course, none of those 21 light item vetoes touch savings. Um, He really applauded lawmakers for that. Really, his vetoes were about, you know, how prescriptive the legislature is able to be in their budget. He did veto, I want to note, a footnote that had to do with the property tax refund program. Essentially, he deleted a footnote that would have reduced the budget's appropriation to that program by as much as $5 million. So he essentially ensured that those funds would stay put regardless of what the legislature decides to do about property tax relief. So to answer your question, Jeff, yes, It looks like the legislature took Gordon's advice to save, at least when it came to the budget. But, you know, not everything Gordon encouraged in his state of the state came to fruition. For example, House Bill 83, tribal agreements to hunt and fish. Mike, you've been closely following that bill. Yes, I have, Maggie. I've probably uh, written more about that bill this session than any other piece of legislation. House Bill 83 was a joint effort by the state of Wyoming and essentially the Eastern Shoshone tribe to come to an agreement about off-reservation hunting in the wake of a somewhat recent U.S. Supreme Court decision. It dates to 2019, a case known as Herrera v. Wyoming. That high court decision, essentially, it overturned a century of legal precedent that prioritized state game laws over treaty hunting promises. In my earlier stories this session, I'd use adjectives like landmark and historic to describe this legislation. You know, if it passed, I think those descriptions would have been fair and accurate. At the heart of why this is all happening is 1868 treaty language, after all. Uh, And that treaty language guaranteed tribal members the right to hunt on unoccupied lands of the United States with some stipulations after that uh, language in the treaty. The short story is that uh, that those treaty promises were ignored for well over a hundred years, and now because of a U.S. Supreme Court decision, they cannot be. Uh, So Wyoming, which by the way fought this all the way to the high court, had basically been painted into a corner on the issue. But rather than exclusively duke it out in court, the state sought to come up with an agreement with the Eastern Shoshone tribe about what off-reservation hunting seasons could look like. House Bill 83 basically provided the framework for those agreements and granted the governor the authority to go outside of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department's normal seasons and regulations. And so why did it fail? Yeah, in essence, House Bill 83 failed because the tribes walked away. Partly that was because most tribes were excluded. Uh, This legislation was initiated by the Eastern Shoshone tribe, and state officials did not shy away from admitting that the bill was, at least initially, targeted at that tribe alone. Of course, the Eastern Shoshone tribe is not the only tribe that historically used what we now think of as Wyoming. Uh, And even Wyoming's second modern-day resident tribe, the Northern Arapaho, which split the Wind River Indian Reservation with the Eastern Shoshone, they were not in line for an agreement because of differences, basically, in their treaty language. The Northern Arapaho did not rally against this legislation, but other tribes from out of state did. One of those was the Shoshone Bannock, whose reservation uh, is in southeast Idaho, 
their tribal chairman, Nathan Small, he called in to testify against House Bill 83 while it was going through committee. Uh, He told legislators, I've never entered into any agreements that would constrain or otherwise impede our management authority under the treaty, and we will not engage in a negotiated agreement as laid out in the proposed legislation. He was pretty straight. And uh, days later, the Eastern Shoshone's Business Council sent out a letter reversing their stance on the bill. They cited the Shoshone Bannock's concerns which revolved around violations of their sovereignty. There were clauses in the legislation, for example, that would have subject tribal members to state prosecution. And there were requirements that tribes align their hunting, fishing, and trapping seasons with those of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. The legislation died 8 to 23. To turn the page, you know, I've also been tracking the impact the Wyoming Freedom Caucus has had on the session. I think one test of their power is the way anti-LGBTQ bills have fared in the House, uh, which is not well. Jeff, I think you've been following this. This week, I was watching four bills in particular. Now, we're pretty late in the session, so it's really coming down to the wire for lawmakers who have a pet project they want to push through this session. And that's where these bills were. The four I was looking at had all started as Senate files in the Wyoming Senate and all four of them had passed out of the Senate no problem. But then they had to go to the House of Representatives, and that's been a problem for most of them. As we've seen a lot this session, many bills are missing key deadlines in the House and getting eliminated that way. Maggie has some stellar reporting on this if you want to know why that is, but I bring it up now just to point out what's happening with these bills. So at the beginning of last week, there were four anti-LGBTQ bills in the House, Basically, three of them died last week, while the last one is still in play. And so what did that bill do? Well, one of these bills is basically a copy of Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. It limits what some elementary school teachers can talk about in the classroom, and it might require school districts to out gay and trans students to their parents. But it was never assigned to a House committee, so it died on Friday when it missed the deadline to do that. There were attempts to force the issue, but the representatives trying to force the issue couldn't muster the votes to overpower the House Speaker, who had decided not to introduce the bill. So if you were tracking Wyoming's version of Don't Say Gay, that bill is really, truly dead now. Gotcha, Jeff. So that's one of the four bills you were watching, but what about the others? Well, two of the other bills were going to outlaw gender-affirming care for trans youth. Basically, they would have made it illegal to give kids gender-affirming surgery, hormone blockers, or maybe even gender-affirming therapy. For all intents and purposes, both of these bills are dead. One of them is technically still hanging on, but it will probably be dead by the end of the day for complicated reasons we don't have time to get into. Roger that. So that's three dead bills. Uh, Don't say gay in the two bills outlawing gender-affirming care. You said four. What's the last one? Well, there's another anti-trans bill that's still very much alive, and that's Senate File 133. This bill would ban trans girls and women from competing in high school sports. Unlike the other bills, this one did actually advance out of committee last week, so it's still alive. But it has some significant hurdles it still needs to clear. Something to understand is that this bill has a huge price tag. It includes a million dollars in funding to fight off the lawsuits that everyone admits are going to happen if this thing passes. So the bill passed out of the Education Committee, 
But now, because of the money it needs, the bill has to pass out of the Appropriations Committee, too. In summary, there were four anti-gay and anti-trans bills heading into last week. Now, there's one, and it's going to face some hurdles still. But whatever you think about the bills themselves, it's important to remember that the political debate doesn't reflect any debate going on in scientific or expert communities. Every major medical and pediatric association in the country supports gender-affirming care like therapy or medication that delays puberty for kids who aren't sure yet about their gender identity. And Madeline Beck, who works with you two at Wiofile, has written about how all the best research points to this care being life-saving care. Whatever you think of these bills or the issues they're getting at, it's important to realize that a lot of what's in them flies in the face of what the experts are saying. But I'll continue to follow these bills and the issues as we close out this session this week. Maggie and Mike, what will you be watching? I'm going to be watching to see what Governor Mark Gordon does with the crossover voting bill, which after I think it's like eight or nine attempts by past legislatures over the course of several different sessions, a bill to restrict how and when Wyoming residents may affiliate with a political party um, has finally cleared both chambers. It's been a very long and interesting journey for for that endeavor. You know, most recently that bill failed in committee, but then the Senate used uh, this sort of rarely used rule to resurrect the bill, and it ended up getting enough su- support to cross the Senate's finish line. While the concept was not new to that body, some sort of fresh concerns emerged during that debate. There was a concern that the blackout period that the bill establishes, it's basically the 90 or so days ahead of the primary election where voters will not be able to cancel their voter registration and they won't be able to affiliate with the political party. There's some concern about what that would mean if you're, say, a 17-year-old and you turn 18 years old in that period of time whether or not you're going to be able to register to vote. I'm sort of interested to see, you know, what Gordon makes of that potential concern over the bill, whether it will be enough for him to veto it. Sort of interesting that it's come full circle back to him when, you know, it was his 2018 victory in the gubernatorial race that started all of this commotion. So that's what I'm going to be looking for. Well, Mike and Maggie, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Butch. And thanks for listening to the Cheyenne Roundup, your weekly look at what lawmakers are up to during the 2023 legislative session from Wyoming Public Media and Wyofile. Tune in next Monday for our episode recapping the session. In the meantime, find more legislative coverage at wyomingpublicmedia.org and wyofile.com. Thanks for listening.